Uh, if you are new with us, we're in the book of Romans. Uh, we're in Romans chapter 3 today, and I want to take a minute and just kind of understand what Romans is. It's a, it's a long uh, epistle. The word epistle simply means letter. A lot of the New Testament books were letters written from either Paul or Peter or John or James, written to different churches around the Mediterranean area, and these letters would be received and they would be read out loud in the churches. And a lot of times it wasn't to one church like this where maybe there's a couple hundred people. It would be written to a city and the letter would go around to every house church in that city or every church that would meet in that city and they would read these letters aloud and it was part of the theological foundation. There's even times where Paul might say, hey, after you guys have read this, send this up to the next city so that they can read it also. And the goal was just this establishment of the gospel and helping people understand what it means to know Jesus and to follow him. What's interesting about Romans is that it is exceptionally long. You might have noticed that, okay, you read Philippians or Ephesians, and it's just a few short pages, and then you read Romans, and it totals up to 16 chapters, although we added the chapters and verses later. It's this thing, this behemoth of a letter. You think, why is it so long? Like, why does he have to go into so much detail? And I, you know, I don't know what your experience was coming to faith in Jesus, if that's your story For some of us, it didn't take much. Somebody might have told you like, hey, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And your mind was just blown to think God loves me and you're in. And you just want to follow Jesus and pursue everything about him and and chase down everything that is in this, this good news that you've just heard. But there are others of you that maybe there's a bit more of a questioning heart, a skeptical heart. Okay, God loves me. Well, who is God? Why does he have to be the God that comes from your church? Why can't I find God in the Redwoods up in Big Sur? Like, what if that is God to me, and I want to go, and I want to find God in nature, and I don't want the church, and I don't want the religion, and I don't want the Bible. I want God. So yes, I agree God loves me. I just don't agree with the premise of who your God is. Or what does it mean that God loves me? Does that mean that he lets me do whatever I want, whenever I want? Is that God's love? Because that's a picture of love to me, is that God would actually give me license to do what I want and live how I want. And so whoever God is and however God loves, saying God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life may not be enough. There's some complexity and complication to understanding the gospel. And as we look at cities like Rome and honestly a culture like ours today, it is a bit more layered. There's a lot of complexity to it. There are a lot of philosophies and ideas about how somebody might find God or eternity or karma or enlightenment or a next life or whatever is waiting for me. There might be a lot of opinions about how a person could get there. And so there are layers upon layers upon layers of what does it mean to know God? Well, Rome was just like that. And Paul, writing into this complex city, understands that he needs to give them a deep and profound explanation of the gospel that anchors them in who God is and what he's done and how it works and why why he would do this. And these answers, these explanations, Paul is 
is nuancing them and wringing out the towel and moving in many directions and helping build people up so that there is a deeply anchored understanding of the gospel that can navigate through a lot of the complications of a world like Rome or a world like today. And so as we dig into this, there is a, an opportunity for us to hear the gospel over and over and over. Part of my prayer for this series and even for today specifically is if you don't yet know Jesus, that today would be a day of salvation. That hearing the gospel would be something that stirs you and challenges you to consider who Jesus is and what it means to walk with him and to follow him and what the implications of that are. I, I want to see us be a people that hold the gospel but I also want to understand that not everybody here is in that place, and there might be some of you that need to receive the gospel, to hear the saving grace of God that is for you. And that's, as we preach through this message today, there is going to be a lot of that. And there's invitation. And I want you to hear that that invitation is for you. And so as we dig into this, it does start with the bad news, because we're on week three of the bad news, but finally we get to the good news. My dad's favorite joke is it's the best butt in the Bible. Uh, just one T, so there you go. It's the best butt in the Bible in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. That's a total dad joke, but he's the grandpa now, so it's a grandpa joke. Uh, and we're going to walk through this, and I want, I want you to see we're starting in verse 9 and going through 20 as the bad news, and then 20 on through 26 is where the good news really kicks in. And doing this to see this summary of just, just how dark humanity is. And it's a challenge to walk through this over and over and over and over to see how dark humanity is. But Paul is making sure that everybody understands, everybody understands what category they fit in. There is no path to God. You do not have it. Whatever you thought you had to get you to God, it's, not, it's, it's wrong. It's a miss. And he's explaining why over and over and over. Why? What you thought you had as a pathway to God is not, is not the right way if it's not Jesus and Jesus alone. So let's dig in. This is Romans chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, open them up. We're going to start in verse 9 and go all the way through verse 26. Now, keep in mind as I'm reading this, Paul himself is a Jew and a Pharisee, which meant that he was devoted, dedicated to obeying the law. So what he writes about Jews, this is his autobiography. He's not saying this about Jews in, in terms of pointing. This is his autobiography. He's talking about his own story when he talks about Jewish people and their relationship to God. So he says in verse 9, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known." There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins and was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Lord, would you give us the ability to understand your word and to embed it deeply in our hearts today? It's in your name we pray, amen. All right, so as you dig into this, you'll notice that the the starting point this week is the same as our ending point last week. Paul's finishing his final brushstroke. The picture that we've been using, uh, I've I've taken this and and gotten some miles out of it. The Dutch painter Rembrandt would start every canvas by painting the entire canvas black. It was a process that he used to draw color out of darkness. All of his paintings have a dark hue, but there's, there's light that just shines out of it. And there's this metaphor of what Paul's doing, that he's painting the entire canvas black, that there's no hope for humanity anywhere in any of the efforts that we have sought to find God or peace or joy or happiness or hope or pleasure. We have not found it. We're still looking, and it doesn't exist. You can't get there. And one of the things that Paul's doing is he's talked about the Gentile world and their efforts to find happiness and pleasure and worldly efforts, but he's also, he's pointed to sort of the religious moral mentality that was oftentimes embodied by the Jewish people, and he's talked about how even that is insufficient. It doesn't doesn't work. It doesn't get you there. And so Paul goes on this run from verse 10 through verse 18. None is righteous, no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He's, he's listing out these, these things, and you might look at that and say, what is this all about? This is Paul giving us a tour of the Old Testament belief that man is truly depraved. There's a lot of verses that he quotes in this. And in fact, I put a list together. They're up on the screen. Uh, And this whole list of scriptures, Paul's drawing from them all. And he's showing these Old Testament believers, these Jews, that they need to understand that this has always been the story with God. People have always fallen short of the glory of God. There has always been an issue of the depravity of man. And each of these scriptures speaks to how far we actually were from God. Now, God did give Israel a way to walk with him. He gave them a sacrificial system. He gave them the law. He gave them this way to be in relationship with him. But one of the things that can tend to happen is that you might start to develop a sense of, well, because we're Israel, we have all the promises of God. Because we were born into this, we have all the promises of God. Because we have been given the law, we have all the promises of God. And it starts to become positional salvation, proximity salvation. And as we talked about last week, so often that can happen in the church as well, where 
You grow up in it. And this is especially critical for people that grow up in Sunday school or student ministries. Like We get so familiar with being around Christianity, being near it, proximate to the Christian world. We have Christian schools that do chapels every day. We have, uh, we have homeschool groups that pray all the time, that talk about the gospel, that bring all of the word of God into the curriculum. We have these things, and we can so easily be in the umbrella of Christianity having never understood the gospel ourselves, having never known Jesus and what it means to walk with him. And one of Paul's goals is to actually make sure that that Israel understands that your proximity did nothing for you. It gave you the oracles of God. It gave you what God has said, but there's still a need to understand that you are not righteous. You're not righteous. Paul writes this in verse 19. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. I don't know if you like, have any clue with that every mouth may be stopped. I was trying to understand that. There's a theologian named N.T. Wright that writes about this. It's very helpful. And he says that first century practice, when there is a defendant on trial, they would give their defense and to signify when they were done with their defense, they would put their hand over their mouth. But if a defendant just kept going and going and going, maybe trying to prolong their life before their death penalty, maybe trying to talk their way into an innocent plea, the judge or the pro-counsel would order that somebody put their hand over the person's mouth and stop their defense. You're done. You have nothing else to say. You've come to the end of what you can offer, and it's not enough. And Paul's writing this, and he says that their mouth may be stopped and that the whole world will be held accountable before God. Look, you've tried every possible path. We've looked in every place for a way to get what God has, eternity, wholeness, peace, contentment. We're trying to find these things, but in every place, all we've found is destruction. And we're at the end of what we can try. Every mouth has been stopped and the whole world is accountable before God. He says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And maybe you think about that. Paul actually wrestles with this quite a bit in Romans. If God is holy and he gave a holy law If somebody keeps the law, shouldn't they then also be holy? And he says, actually, the law was given to show that nobody can perfectly keep it. Maybe you do all the right things. Maybe you get the law right, but there's an issue in your heart. Your motives are off. This was put on full display with the story of the rich young ruler where Jesus is met by a young man that says, I've kept the law entirely. What else do I need to do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus says to him, go and sell everything. Give it all to the poor and come and follow me. I'm what you're looking for. 
It was never about the law. It was about pointing to me, to Jesus. Jesus is inviting us in and saying, I'm what you've been looking for. And that young man, that rich young ruler, walks away sad and dejected because he had much. He couldn't give up what he had to pursue Jesus. He missed the point of the law. And that's, that's what Paul's getting at. The law showed us how far we actually are from holiness. Holiness is this perfect standard of right and good. It's purity through and through. And the law was given by a holy God. And it demonstrates how far even Israel was from that standard of holiness. So then, verse 21 hits. And he says, but now. We've been at this since chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed against, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So the law was the righteousness of God. It was manifested. It was demonstrated. But now what we have is the righteousness of God manifested apart from the law. We have a new standard. Before the standard of holiness was the law, and nobody could live up to it. And now the standard of righteousness is Jesus. The law and the prophets were always there to point to it. And Paul makes this very clear. Look, the, the story of the word of God has been pointing forward to Jesus through and through. The law was given, pointing us to Jesus. The prophets were there, pointing us to Jesus. All things were pointing to the need for a Messiah, a new heart, a new covenant, a new way. Paul's making this clear, Israel, this isn't about dismissing the story of God. We're not disposing of the Old Testament. We're not getting rid of your history, but helping you understand that it was all meant to point us to the actual solution to the problem that is us. And in verse 22, he says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, all who believe. Now, we're going to get into some stuff here. This is the gospel. We're done with the bad news, and now we're talking about the good news. And we get this opportunity to see Paul put it on display, and he uses some huge words. And they're huge theologically. They are significant in their standard, what they bring to the table. But you should understand that this was a mixed audience. And so these words have different connotations for each audience. He's going to use the words redemption and propitiation and justification. And maybe you don't have history with those words, but both Israel and the Gentile world had history with those words. And it's important to know that each of them would get slightly different things out of these words. The first word, redemption, that we're going to get into is Paul talks about this. He talks about the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. For the Jewish person, their mind snaps immediately to Egypt. And the word redemption is the same word for the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land. That deliverance is their redemption. God brought them out of slavery and into freedom. And that's the picture of redemption that Israel would go to. Now, the Gentile world would go to a different story. So Rome had been taking over all kinds of territories, and every territory that they took over, they would take a lot of people into captivity and bring them back to Rome as slaves. So there was a lot of slavery in the first century. 
And it was every color, every language, every tribe. I mean, it, it, they were indiscriminate in terms of who they put into slavery. As they took over new territories, they would bring a lot of people back to Rome. And this word redemption was a common one also because, well, there were a lot of freed slaves. Slaves would work. They might work off two years or five years or ten years of work and then would be bought out of their slavery, redeemed out of their slavery, and given freed status. And they could function in the Roman Empire as freed people after they had been redeemed. Now, there are two ways to do this. One was to work off whatever it took to work it off. And then the other is, if you had a benefactor, somebody could come and buy you out of your slavery before your term was done. They could redeem you by paying for your freedom. And so for the Gentile world to hear the word redemption, they understand this idea of being slaves and being bought out of slavery and set free. And Paul will use that to describe this journey. We'll get to this in a, in a bit. The next thing that Paul talks about is propitiation. Now, if you take the Old Testament and translate it to Greek, which was done, it's called the Septuagint. There's a word in Leviticus 17, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. Uh, in Leviticus 17, it's describing the Ark of the Covenant and what's called the mercy seat, which is the top of the Ark of the Covenant between the wings of two cherubim where the presence of God would sit inside of the Holy of Holies. Very detailed description of where God's presence would physically land. And the Greek word for that Hebrew word mercy seat is hilasterion, which is the same word that Paul uses for propitiation. The mercy seat, what happened on the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence, his atoning presence over Israel is what Paul uses to describe this sacrificial work of Jesus. Now you think, that seems pretty loaded. What did the Gentiles think about propitiation? They had a different view of propitiation. There were 13 temples in Rome to 13 different gods, and they would go and they would offer sacrifices to these gods if they wanted love or if they wanted success or if they wanted money or if they wanted land or if they wanted the weather to turn. They could go and they could offer sacrifices to these different gods trying to appease the wrath of gods, and it was called propitiation. The same word, elasterion, was used in the Gentile Greek world for those sacrifices because they had to go and appease the wrath of God. The gods, sorry. They would try and satisfy them to receive blessing. So they would pick whatever their sacrifice was. It could be lavish if they had money. They would bring animals. They would bring money. They would bring bread. They would bring all the things to the temple and lay it at the feet of the gods in the hopes that those gods would look favorably on them. And that was propitiation. So Israel has one view, and the Gentiles have another view. But here's the interesting thing. In Israel, the high priest would select the lamb, the spotless lamb. He would bring it into the temple. They would sacrifice it. They would splatter the blood on the altar. They would present it and burn it. And this offering that was made by the high priest on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was the offering of atonement that Israel for that year would have their sins forgiven. That was done by the high priest. In Rome, every individual person would bring their sacrifice, would bring their offering to the gods. The gospel is that God puts Jesus forth as a propitiation for our sins. So Paul takes this word that Israel had one view of 
And Rome had another view of, and he brings this completely new significance to the word propitiation and helps them understand the gospel through an entirely new lens. And the third word is justification. And Paul talks about justification. He talks to Israel, and Israel understands justification because in the law there was this declaration of righteousness that they would understand that if you obey the law, then you have the righteousness of God. Now that was a a slightly misunderstood version of justification that Paul goes in to explain in great detail. But when they would think justification, that was the path that they would think, the declaration of righteousness of Israel. For Rome, it was a legal term. If somebody was on trial and they were declared not guilty, that was the word for justification. They were declared righteous. They were set free. They were able to go. They were no longer accountable for whatever crime they were accused of because they had been declared righteous. And so it was this legal term that had to do with being declared not guilty. And Paul takes that word and he talks about how with Israel, look, nobody was actually righteous. And he talks about with Rome, look, everybody was actually guilty. There's nobody that's not guilty. Yet there's still this justification. I wanted you to have an understanding of these three words because they are at the core of the gospel. And this is what Paul is building to bring a sense of deep and profound understanding to how you are saved. How does a person go from being called wicked and broken and fallen? How does a person go from that place to being called righteous and holy and pure? How is that even possible? And Paul goes into great detail to explain exactly how that works. So starting at the second part of verse 22, Paul says, For there is no distinction. Now, uh, the chapters and verses were added by monks probably about 1,600 years ago, and most of the time they were very helpful, and some of the times they got it just buns wrong. And this is one of those places that they got it totally wrong. Verse 22, 23, and 24 are essential to understand as they thought. And let me ask you this. Just show of hands, actual participation. How many of you, if you grew up in the church or had any kind of VBS or Awana, how many of you at some point memorized Romans 3.23? Raise your hand if you, at some point you memorized Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Like if I, if I were to do a little sword drill right now and say, stand up and say Romans 3.23, boom, about 100 people would pop up and say, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it is essential to understand that verse to know our human depravity. But I want you to hear what Paul says. This is the sentence it starts in verse 22. He says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and, verse 24, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation. I want you to think about this for just a second. What is Paul saying? When we say Romans 3.23 by itself, the message is we all fall short of the glory of God, which is absolutely true. But the point of Romans 3.22, 23, 24, 25 is all have sinned, there's no distinction, and all are justified by his grace as a gift. There's no distinction. Literally, the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. There's no distinction. Jew, Gentile, every path you could possibly look at, none of them work. 
There is one way to experience salvation, and it is through Jesus Christ alone. There's no distinction. Everybody needs Jesus. We've sufficiently wrung out the towel. Whatever way you've tried to find to get to eternity, to get to happiness, to get to enlightenment, to get to a future life, whatever path you've been on, you have missed it if it doesn't land in Jesus and Jesus alone. He is the only way to experience what God has for you. And Paul says, let me tell you how this works. Let's talk about this for just a minute. Everybody's justified by his grace as a gift. You were wicked, you were evil. I was wicked, I was evil. We brought nothing to the table. It wasn't based on merit. God wasn't looking around the earth and saying, who are the good people? They're the ones that I'm going to save. In fact, Paul will go on to say later, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He did nothing. This isn't based on you. This is based on his grace as a gift. This is why we give gifts at Christmas, by the way, in case you were wondering. This is why we give gifts. It's a picture. It's a gospel picture of the grace of God being given as a gift with no expectation of anything in return. Keep that in mind when you give gifts. This isn't a, hey, you got me something good, right? The idea is that there would just be this here. The lavish grace of God, this is a gift. You did nothing, yet the gift was offered to you. You're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, the deliverance, the purchasing you out of slavery. This was the work that Jesus did on the cross. When he went to the cross, it was for a purpose. And Paul will go on to explain using slave language that you were in bondage to sin. You had no future but sin. You had no future but destruction. He'll tell the Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. There was no spiritual life in you. There was no spark. There was no hope. You didn't have it to give. Because of your sin, you were empty. That picture is so important for you to understand because Jesus, who had everything, bought you out of your slavery. Purchased by his blood. Paul will tell the Corinthians, you were bought at a price. And that language is important. He uses it to say it was a costly sacrifice. His life was given so that you could be brought out of your slavery and into freedom. Who the Son sets free is free indeed. The picture of freedom is so important. Now, I want you to understand, Paul takes that freedom, and he voluntarily, now that he has freedom, will tell you, I am a bond slave to Jesus. Paul calls himself, says over and over, I am a slave to Christ. Christ didn't make him a slave. He's saying, this is my life now. I belong to him. He bought me out of slavery, and I am his. And that's Paul's choice. This is what he says. I belong to Christ. I'm his now. I was bought with a price. 
Paul wants us to understand, now I, I belong to Jesus. And he goes on. He says, we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And we've used this example a lot. I'm going to continue to use it because it's very important for us to understand. Our hearts crave justice. If there was a, a, a truly horrible criminal, somebody that had done, whether it's war crimes or a serial killing or, or stealing massive amounts of money, some kind of deep wickedness, as the world watches the trial, there's this longing for justice, this want for whatever was done wrong to be made right through the legal system. And the picture of, of, a, of a judge Declaring that person guilty, saying, okay, trial of your peers, you're guilty, but you know what? It's been a really hard road for you. Time served. We're just going to go ahead and let you go. Just maybe try not to do it again. Just go. You're free. Like the, the world would erupt in anger over the injustice of a judge shrugging his shoulders at the evil that a person did and saying, you're free to go. As that person walks out of the courtroom, there's not all of humanity out there just saying, I can't believe that. What a beautiful picture of justice. No, it's riots in the streets. Righteous anger because we demand justice when horrible things are done. But then at the same time, there's this part of us, and we just think, God, how can you, how can you judge the world? How can you say that people would go to hell? How can a good God say that somebody would go to hell that doesn't feel like goodness, that doesn't seem fair, that doesn't feel like a very merciful thing to do? And with God, we demand mercy. We want God to release humanity from its crimes and say, don't worry about it, it's fine. And so we have this longing for justice when it comes to the things of this world. We have this longing for mercy when it comes to our eternal status before God. We want both. We want justice and we want mercy. And here's the, the situation, is that God is both. God is perfectly just, and he needs to be. It's like essential to be called holy, to be always right all the time, is to judge what is unholy. To actually call things out and say that is unrighteous, we would say that it's the righteous thing to do. That's why God's righteousness actually manifests in his wrath. God is not inherently wrathful. God is wrathful because sin exists. If sin did not exist, God would not be a wrathful God. Holiness plus sin equals wrath. That's the equation of how we get to a wrathful God. Because there is sin, his righteous justice punishes sin and he should. 
That is a just and holy God. But we know that God is merciful. Exodus 34, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and kindness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations. That's Exodus 34. God is merciful, yet he does not let the guilty go unpunished. That is also Exodus 34. As God revealed himself to us, I am merciful and I am just. How does this work? So God, being rich in mercy, exercises his muscle of mercy, puts on display his muscle of mercy and creates a pathway for humanity to experience his grace and his kindness. So here's how it works. God sent his own son. God in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus came into this world a perfect sinless, spotless human being, born of a woman, lives a perfect, sinless, spotless life. He is betrayed and mocked and beaten and scorned and spat on and hung on a tree and cursed until he is dead. And in that, the wrath of God was unleashed on Jesus. His anger towards sin was unleashed onto Jesus' body. This is how Peter puts it. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, he bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you were healed. This is how Paul says it to the Corinthians. For our sake... He made him who knew no sin. Jesus did not experience sin for himself. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. And that wording is very important. On the cross, Jesus became the embodiment of all sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on the cross. And the full wrath of God towards all sin, all human wickedness, all our deceit, all our lies, all our lusts, all of our murder, all of our wickedness, his wrath towards all of it was poured out on Jesus in that moment on the cross. All of it. God put Jesus forth as a propitiation to receive his own wrath towards sin. He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. My sin has been punished fully by the wrath of God. The wrath of God has been unleashed on every time I've lied to Kristen, every time I've been angry with anybody, every time I've lusted, every time I have thought envious of another human being, all of God's wrath towards all of my sin was unleashed on Jesus on the cross. 
so that I might become the righteousness of God? That doesn't seem fair. But it is just and it is merciful. There is no sin in this world that has gone unpunished. And what God has done is he's created a way. He's created a way for every single person to have their sin satisfied by the finished work of Jesus. And it's through this word, faith, belief. When we put our faith in Jesus, the work that he did on the cross becomes effective for our lives. I have a friend named DJ, Daniel Jansen, that uh, he preaches at Imago Day Church in Downey. And he says that the gospel is simultaneously radically inclusive and radically exclusive. It's radically exclusive in that there is no other way to God. You can't do it. There's no path to the contentment that comes from peace with God. There's no path to eternity. There's no path to the fulfillment of a life connected to our creator. There's no way to get there apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. I'm it. I'm it. And there's a a frustration with the world. Why? Why? Did God only make one way? If this God is real, why would he only give us Jesus? The gospel is radically exclusive. And the reason that it's Jesus and Jesus alone is that it is the only way for God to maintain his justice and his desire to declare us righteous. He is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus is the solution because he's the only solution that can satisfy both God's justice and his mercy. He's it. But it's radically inclusive because Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Paul says, all have sinned and fall short and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's the same gospel for everybody and it's available to every human being. All eight billion of us alive today, today can experience salvation through Jesus Christ. It's yours. It's yours through faith in Jesus. And so maybe you think, okay, so how does, I hear the word faith. How does that work? What is, what is faith? What do I have to do? And that's the power and the beauty and the awkwardness of the gospel. Paul says in the Ephesians uh, letter, he says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, not of works so that no one can boast. You didn't earn it. You couldn't have done anything better to get it. God didn't choose you because of where you were born, what church story you were born into, 
what you accomplished in this life, how good you've been, how close you've come. He actually makes this available to all. It is the only way, but it's the way that's available to every human being. And God wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what Paul tells Timothy. God wants everyone. He desires that none should perish. That's what Peter tells us. That all would come to the knowledge of the truth. This is God's stated desire. He's made a way. And it's an effective way. It works. You don't try the gospel, but for some reason it doesn't apply to you because you're really wicked. And that's what Paul's done. He's wrung that towel out. Like, no. The most of the most of the most wicked get the gospel too. And you put your faith in Jesus, which is simply Paul describing the turn of your heart. Peter, when he preaches the very first gospel message, uses the word repent. And repent is a tough one, because especially if you didn't grow up in the church, it kind of got a bad rap. Maybe you did grow up in the church and it got a really bad rap. But the word repent can sometimes be thrown around like a cuss word, but it's actually, it's a really beautiful word. It's an invitation to turn. It's turning away from your efforts to find a path to eternity, enlightenment, hope, future, peace, contentment, whatever it is that's not God. And to turn to a different way. To find Jesus. And to put your faith in Jesus is in that change of heart, your belief that those other things will save goes away. You turn away from that. And your belief that Jesus is sufficient, well, that brings you into the story of God. He's done the work and has invited you to respond with belief. And that belief that adopts you into the family of God and makes you an heir of God and a co-heir with Jesus Christ, that takes you from being dead in your trespasses and sins to being alive in Jesus Christ, it gives you a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That faith turns everything about your story. It is by grace you've been saved through faith. And salvation is yours. And Paul goes on to say, hey, there's, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's done. It's finished. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to be curious. You just get to experience the salvation that is Jesus Christ and his finished work. Now, here's what I want to say as clearly as I can. There are a lot of us that grew up proximate to Christianity and have assumed a lot of this to apply to our lives. And when I say proximate, I just mean around it. For some, it's really big, like the culture of a 
American nation that is under God, that talks about it in our national anthem and on our uh, Pledge of Allegiance and that kind of thing. It's like, okay, so it's a Christian nation. So because I'm American, I'm in the story. Or maybe you get a little bit more specific and your parents raised you in a church and you're just, you've been around it your whole life been close and it's just been this story of always knowing the lingo, always knowing the stories, always being around it. Or maybe it's even in your adulthood, you're in a friend group and they kind of pray together or in a community group. They really love Jesus. They like to tell other people about Jesus and you're just kind of one of the gang. You've just sort of been absorbed into the story. Well, the story isn't a story of proximity. It's not a story of being around the gospel. It's an invitation for you to put your faith in Jesus and to experience all of the blessings of God today. And I don't know if you're not walking with Jesus today and this is speaking to you, but I want to say this to you directly. You are invited today to have your full account of all the wickedness you have ever done, everything that's ever been wrong in your life, laid before Jesus. And he, today, even though he died on the cross 2,000 years ago, today satisfies all of God's righteous anger towards your sin. It's, it's poured out on Jesus instead of on you. Today, by putting your faith in Jesus, all of that work becomes effective to you personally. He gives you his spirit and invites you to be transformed over time. Everybody that's here that's walking with Jesus would tell you it's not instant transformation to perfection, but you're set free from bondage to sin. All of a sudden, you have this new freedom to choose the spirit of God, to walk in righteousness, to experience the wholeness of a right relationship with God, to be filled with the fullness of who God is because you are his child adopted into his family. He wants this for you today, and it's available today. And there's a, there's a scripture that just says this simple phrase. It says, today is the day of salvation. I just want to invite you, if you've never given your life to Jesus and today as you're hearing this gospel, that's the word we use to talk about the good news of Jesus. You're hearing this gospel and you're saying, I, I want what that guy's talking about. I want the story of God. I want Jesus. I want forgiveness. I don't want the wrath of God. I want eternity. Whatever the spirit of God is, I want that. I want what he's talking about. I want that. Please hear my words right now. It's yours. You can have it right now. Putting your faith in Jesus can be as simple as a moment of prayer where you go before the Lord and you say, I was looking in the wrong places for what it meant to find contentment and happiness in eternity. And I'm hearing that the place that I need to look is you, Jesus. And I want to start my journey of you, Jesus. It can be as simple as a prayer like that. 
can be grabbing a friend or whoever brought you and just saying, can you tell me about salvation? And I want to I do something today. We don't do this often, and I just, it's an invitation. If there's anybody here that's just like, yeah, this is my story, would you consider standing up and acknowledging that this is your story today? That today is the day of your salvation and you're ready to walk with Jesus in faith, to experience all of his blessing and all of his story and what he has for you. If that's something that you want to do today, it's okay if there's none, and it's okay if there's 25 of you. I'm not looking for a number. I just want you, if you're hearing my voice and it's stirring in you and compelling you today to stand up, would you stand up and declare that today is the day of your salvation? Is there anybody that would like to do that today? to share with you guys, we had a, a man named Alex in our f- first gathering, and it was the absolute joy of my, I don't know, day, week, month, year, life, I don't know, <laughs> to watch a man that's about my age, he's got a couple of kids, wife, grew up in the story, around it, but had never given his life to Jesus, say, today's the day of salvation. And I want you to hear this. If what I'm saying today just noodles in your brain, like you walk out of here and you're like, okay, I'm not, I'm not free from that thought. I need to process this. It's not a too late after you walk out the door. This isn't the moment and then the moment goes away. This is a story that God's working in you and inviting you to experience what he has for you. One of my goals as a preacher today was to preach the gospel and to make sure that you knew that you were invited in and you could experience that salvation today. And for those of us that are followers of Jesus, I'll say this, and actually, uh, you guys can start coming up, Jeff. This is the message of God's grace that goes out from us. What you've heard from me today The things that are in Romans chapter 3, this is for all. There's no distinction. We carry this to the world and we share it boldly and confidently that there is a story of salvation for each and every person on this planet and we want to invite them to experience, by God's grace, the salvation that he has for them. And it should come off your lips at some point with increasing consistency. It should come off your lips to share this good news of Jesus with people that need to hear it. That we become bearers of the good news is the story that God's writing on those that are followers of Jesus. And it's a joy to proclaim it. It's the joy of my life to stand up here and proclaim the good news to you. And we, do, we get the chance to do that every day of our lives. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for today. Lord, I pray as we go into our time of worship, Lord, would you stir us to great faith? Lord, stir us to see the bigness of your gospel and what you long for this world. But I pray, as, even as we prayed over the boxes that went out, uh, I, I pray for these dark corners of the world 
to get the opportunity to hear the gospel. Lord, I also pray for the homes on Calle Pensamiento to hear the gospel. Pray for the people of Dos Vientos to hear the gospel, Lord. I pray for Thousand Oaks and Newbury Park and Simi Valley and Moore Park and Camarillo and Agora and Westlake. Lord, I pray that these communities would experience the invitation to respond to you. That each and every community represented in this room would get to hear the good news that is the gospel of Jesus. Lord, you are the only way but you are the way for all, Jew, Gentile, no distinction. We can all find this path to eternity in Jesus and Jesus alone. We love you, Lord. We praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.